0: Welcome to the Patriotic Pulpit. Do you remember when Joe Biden was running for office in 2020? I remember pretty distinctly that one of the advertisements for his campaign was simply a picture of him driving a car and people would say, riding with Biden. Well, would you ride with Joe Biden? If Joe Biden were to get into the driver's seat of the car, would you ride with Joe Biden? Here's a man who shakes hands with people who are not there who stumbles over his thoughts and words. Honestly, he would not be a person I'd get in the car with, but you know what? I don't want to make fun of Joe Biden. The problem is that we have 80 million, supposedly 80 million Americans who voted to get in the car with him and let Biden do the writing. That's absolutely stunning to me. But here's something else that's even more stunning, and that is his co-pilot is Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. She says things sometimes that are so outlandish, so foolish, and I think, well, how is it that 80 million Americans actually voted for Biden and Harris? And if Biden is not doing the driving, if you're not riding with Biden, then you're riding with Harris. I want you to listen to this statement. This is something that Kamala Harris said the other day. It's been all over the internet, and it regards culture, and I thought, this is absolutely stunning that a vice president of the United States would make such comments as she has made. So I want you to listen to this for just a moment and we'll make some comments on the other side.
1: Well, I think culture is, it is a reflection of our moment and our time, right? And, and, and present culture is the way we express how we're feeling about the moment. And, and we should always find times to express how we feel about the moment. That is a reflection of joy, because you know, it comes in the morning. <laughs> we have to find ways to also express the way we feel about the moment in terms of just having language and, and, and a connection to how people are experiencing life. And I think about it in that way too. And we also, I think it's very important that, that, that leaders, anyone who considers themselves a leader really understands how anything they say would affect a real human being as opposed to, you know, otherwise be a okay.
0: Poet you know, that's, that's enough of that. <laughs> you know, what is a culture? And she, she said something like, it's how a people, a person expresses himself or herself at a, in a moment in time. I mean, I guess that means they're what does that mean? I, it's it's absolutely, to me, so far-fetched that she would actually be the vice president of the United States. So, riding with Biden, riding with Kamala Harris, absolutely stunning that so many people would want to get in the vehicle of these two people. Well, let's help her out just a little bit about a culture. The word culture actually comes from and has the root of it is the word cult. And it comes from the French word culte, which really it refers to worship. It has a religious presupposition to it. Now, usually in the ancient world, the primitive sources, cult simply meant religion. It has more of a pejorative connotation today when you say the word cult. But anciently, and even through the French culture, the word culte or the word cult simply referred to religious concepts or how people worship. So the word culture has its root in cult, but the word culture itself now has kind of branched off from the word cult and doesn't take on a pejorative meaning. But basically people define culture today as the totality of socially transmitted behavior patterns, the belief that people have, the institutions that they go by or the institution to which they belong, it's all the products of human work, human thought, and that is what a culture generally is thought to be, and it has to do originally with religious presuppositions. You don't have a culture that does not involve some sort of belief system, some sort of religious understanding. I like the way Dan Smoot put it in 1994. He said, speaking about the culture of America, he t- tells us the master principle Of our nation is Christianity. The organic documents of our nation so prove it. For example, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all of these are based upon presuppositions. And what are those presuppositions? Those presuppositions basically are involving Christianity or Christian concepts. And so these fundamental principles, Christianity, Religious presupposition, these things are, have proved to be the glue that held the diverse peoples and the diverse groups together. And by the way, this is why multiculturalism, which is taught today taught in our popular culture, whether it be in schools, universities, whether it be by the mainstream media, multiculturalism actually would devalue Christian culture and bring it down to a level that it is nothing better, nothing more special, nothing more great than any other culture, any other religious presupposition in the world. So that's that's what a culture is. And it's so sad that Kamala Harris does not know what a culture involves. But let's just branch out for just a moment. Think about a culture and what a culture involves. A culture is really a worldview. It's a, in a worldview, is simply a general framework from which one views all of reality. It is an effort to make sense of the world. It's a vantage point from which one can view life. It's an all-inclusive perspective, or sometimes, as I put it, it's, it is an all-inclusive lens through which we see world history, through which we see society, how we see education, how we see art, how we see music, how we see anything pertaining to religion and religious presupposition. This is a worldview, and one's worldview is the paradigm through which we size up life, through which we try to understand what's going on in the world, and it is really basically a cohesive unit of thought, and that's a worldview. That's our culture, but sometimes we are unconscious of it. It's also true to say that. That is simply to say, we can be conscious or unconscious of it because a personal worldview is simply a combination of all that you believe to be true, all the moral values, the presuppositions that are religiously driven. That's the driving force behind our actions, our emotions, our decisions, everything that we know about. It involves, a worldview involves, for example, a view of God, that there is only one God, The central affirmation of Scripture is that there is only one God. Not only so, but His character is spelled out through Scripture. He is a personality. He is separate from the creation. He is a character that involves love. He involves justice. And He manages this world. Our presuppositions, that is the Christian presupposition, our culture, at one time it was at least this way that Our view of the world is that it is a creation. It is a created artifact, and it is orderly. We're able to study it. That's why science is able to study it, because God created the world, and he created it for man. Man, therefore, is created in the image of God, and incidentally, the world is not self-perpetuating. It is not simply continuing to roll on. It is actually created by God, and even science shows that it is winding down, it is wearing out. That's the second law of thermodynamics. This is, this is what is involved in a culture. This is a, a cultural view of the world. It also involves your view of history. This is basically the Christian presupposition upon which our country was founded, that history is linear. It is a meaningful sequence of events that leads to fulfillment, and there is a judgment day approaching. On the other hand, a wrong view of history is that which if you, you cannot help but see it. A wrong view of history is what is being taught now in the popular culture. And that is, a wrong view of history is what is thought of as a circle of life or a cyclical view of history. All ancient paganistic cultures involved a cyclical view of history. That is, the ancient world had the belief in the Baal system, as you read it about in the Old Testament, and so Baal supposedly died each year, came back to life. And so that was a cyclical view of history. Well, that's what our popular culture today, for example, in Hollywood, teaches. The Lion King, for example, a popular movie, talked about the circle of life. And that the idea is that history and the history of man is cyclical and has nothing to do with a linear view, linear view of history. It involves also, that is, our worldview a Christian culture involves a view of man that man was created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 that that provides you an ethical framework a a framework to give you ethical thinking. Ethics are basic principles principles of morality, basic principles of right and wrong, and they are disclosed in the Bible. Ethics basically is acting in conformity to what god teaches in his word ethics is not self-love how to love ourselves it's simply how that we can love god and when we do that we learn to appreciate ourselves because we were created in god's image that's genesis chapter 1 verse 27 our view of man includes also that man not only is created in the image of god but sexuality and marriage created by God in Genesis chapter 2. I just defy anyone to tell us how in the world, outside of the Bible, that the institution of marriage could have come about. Where did marriage come from? And how about psychiatry? Man's problems are caused not by anything other than sin. Sin has caused physical problems. It has created spiritual problems. We learned that from Genesis chapter 3 or Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sins, it shall die. Any view of man that does not take into account sin is a faulty basis from which to build a world of psychiatry, or the study of psychiatry. A wrong view of ethics is taught in, of course, different books such as that ethics are autonomous and self-engineered. So the wrong view of ethics, the Humanist Manifesto tells us that Ethics are autonomous and situational. That, of course, is a wrong view of ethics. If that be the case, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing that can be said that's out of bounds. But a Christian view of the world and a Christian view of ethics also give us a view of law and statecraft, and that is that law is a construct that our rulers are to be bound by as well, and that's taught in Romans chapter 13, to maintain order in society for the peace of man, the, the Bible teaches that law is that which even rulers are to obey. There's something above the king, and that's the law that flows right out of the character of God. Statecraft, then, is the art of managing and governing society. And liberty connects, therefore, with God's laws. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, despotism, communism socialism always, always connects with atheism. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Karl Marx, Pol Pot, Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao, Fidel Castro, every one of these specifically deny the worth of the individual. They deny the worth of men and women, and they believe that men and women are slaves to the state. Well, why is that the case? Because they don't believe in God, nor do they believe that man is created in the image of God. Now, we've gone a long way from what Kamala Harris has said, but it is so sad that we have leaders of this country who don't even understand what is a culture, and a culture is based upon religious presuppositions. Our very foundational principles of our country were rooted right in Christianity, We'll be back in a few moments from a leftist activist group called the Satanic Temple that the Texas' heartbeat-based abortion ban violates the religious liberty of Satanists. Now, there's a lot of confusing terminology in that right there. The eternal rebel, they say, is Satan, like Saul Alinsky. Remember, he dedicated his book, Rules for Radicals, to Satan, who was, of course, the Radical from the Old Testament and the New Testament, biblical times. It's interesting that the Satanic Temple does not really believe that Satan exists, but they promote satanic rituals. But they brought a lawsuit in the Southern District of Texas that said that Texas's ban on abortions after six weeks infringes upon our members' rights to engage with their chosen religion and to participate in religious rites and rituals. That's what their director of campaign operations, Aaron Helian, had to say. It's kind of interesting to think about this. They say, okay, it's a choice to kill a person, which is basically the pro abortion stance. But the federal court found that they had no standing in to bring a to bring a lawsuit all, whatsoever. That is to say, that they really have no legal stake in the issue, the no personal legal stake in the issue. What is the satanic temple? Well, the Satanic Temple is known for agitating against pro-life laws, sponsoring LGBTQ pride events, erecting Satanic statues on public property, promoting Satanic clubs on school property, among other, other areas. All of these things, of course, just dovetailing into the leftist agenda in America. As a matter of fact, they have a billboard that is in Southern Texas saying, Abortion Saves Lives. And then they say it's paid for, get this, by Reason Alliance and the Satanic Temple. Abortion saves lives paid for by Reason Alliance. Now, that's hard to know where to begin with all of this, but let's just talk for a moment about choice. They will say they want free choice. This is like the abortion crowd. They want choice. But the choice involves killing a person. Is there any lack of scientific evidence that a an, a baby, a A fetus in the mother's womb is a living life. That's exactly what science teaches. It is exactly what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, back in 1970s, before the Roe v. Wade decision came down, which was overturned, of course, as you know this last year, by the Supreme Court. By the way, they simply sent it back to the states. They did not overturn it in the sense that erasing abortion, they simply put it back to a state decision, which is where it should be. But at that particular time, back in the 1970s and 80s, many doctors, medical doctors, came in and testified before the Senate about when life begins. And there's, there's no question that life begins at conception. That's what their testimony unanimously stated. Life begins at conception. So talking about free choice, they're talking about killing a person. Does free choice, should free choice, be involve killing a person it's absolutely ludicrous. And notice also they say their billboard co-sponsored by, that is the billboard that says abortion saves lives. And by the way, it's not saving lives, it's taking lives. So it's all upside down here, but it's sponsored by or co-sponsored by Reason Alliance. It's actually unreason. We are so upside down in this country. We're, we're absolutely standing on our head. It is non-reason. Why? Because the Bible teaches science teaches life begins at conception but here's another contradiction they are of course not lacking in contradictions and self-contradictions and self-conflicting ideas they tell us that they are a religious organization did you note that they said okay this is our religious freedom now let's just think about that for a moment the humanist manifestos that originally came out in 1933 and then in 1973, and then another one came out, I think it was in 2000, uh, 2013, perhaps it was. But these humanist manifestos claim that humans are all that there are. There's nothing else. There's no, high, there's no higher being. There's no God. No one gives us moral, a moral code coming down from above. And so ethics are situational and autonomous. And so we are all without God. We are simply on a sea driven by the wind and tossed, and so that is the idea of a a secular worldview, that is, there is no God. But here's the interesting thing, because so frequently they've been classified, even by our government, as a religious organization, that is, humanist organizations have been classified as religion, but they loudly cry and object to being classified as religion. They say, no, we're secular, because secular means, of course, non-religion. But at the same time, now, here you have the satanic temple coming along saying, these are our religious rites to kill human beings in the womb. Amazing, isn't it? At the same time, on their website, they say, well, we're pushing a secular worldview. Well, what's secular? Secular is non-religion. So they're just upside down, inside out, and they don't know whether, whether the snake that made the track is going south and coming back. They're just all back and forth. The Bible teaches just the same thing as does science, that abortion is the taking of life. Consider this in Proverbs chapter 6 shedding innocent blood is one of those things that God considers an abomination. Here's another interesting passage in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. The scenario is there given in the law of Moses that two men are fighting, and the two men fighting injure a woman who is with child, and if the child dies, that is in the womb, she miscarries, and the child dies, then there is life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, and stripe for stripe, because it is the taking of innocent life, even when it is considered in the womb. How about Psalms 139 verses 13 to 15, where God says, I am, or this is David speaking, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then David addresses God this way. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame is not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And he's speaking about in his mother's womb. Sadly, however, in America, since 1973, we have slaughtered innocent blood to the tune of 53 million children, that would be since 1973. The Dobbs case overturned Roe versus Wade only in the sense that it sent it back to the states. I want to tell you a short story here. By, this is a story about a 21-week-old unborn baby at Vanderbilt Hospital, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, actually, in Nashville, Tennessee. His name is Samuel Armis. Now, the medical team performed a spina bifida surgery on him while he was still in his mother's womb. And during the surgery, his little hand flopped out of the incision opening and rested right on the doctor's fingers. Eyewitnesses, and there was an eyewitness journalist, a photojournalist there by the name of Michael Clancy, he insists that Samuel's fingers gripped the doctor's finger. That would be in 2001. In any case, Samuel was born 15 weeks later. Nothing about his exit from his mother's body suddenly transformed him from a non-human into a human. He was human throughout his pre-birth existence. Consider this also. When Barack Obama was a senator in the state of Illinois, he heard cases regarding abortion. And he had women coming to him that is coming to a Senate hearing in Illinois. And they testified regarding the abortion practices that they were doing. One of the women had been one of the nurses assistant in an abortion clinic and she wept as she told the story about babies having actually their fingers moving, their hands moving as the doctor made the incision in the back of the neck because they practiced partial birth abortion, pulling the body out first, leaving the head in the cervix and that is cutting the back of the neck and sucking out the baby's brains and she wept as she told the story. And one woman came and told the story about a botched abortion. The baby was born alive. She took it and they, they took it and put it into a closet. And she went to that closet weeping as she picked up the baby and tried to nurse it back to life or try to help it back to life or back to some health. Barack Obama heard this. His answer was kill it. That's a hard hearted position to take, isn't it? That is shedding innocent blood. And that's what our politicians are all about. At the same time, the inconsistency in our country, incongruity exists because if you take possession of an egg containing a pre born American bald eagle, if you took that egg, then you are violating federal law, even though it is a pre born. Bald eagle. And yet, you can take a human child in its pre born environment, not only murder that child, but you receive the government blessing from do, for doing so. Eagles', egg, e- eagles eggs, pre born eagles, they are of greater value to American civilization than pre born humans. That's where we stand. That's what's taking place. So, back to the Satanic Temple for a moment. The Satanic Temple, upside down, and all of her thinking, lost that case in Southern District of Texas. Well, we have more about the Satanic Temple. They've launched a tour, a secular tour, and it's a tour that going going throughout America called the Burning Tour. We'll talk about that when we come back. The Satanic Temple has fought vigorously against Christians, against Christianity in every realm of society, particularly in the public square. It's interesting that they claim that they want religious freedom, religious pluralism, and they want the same level of involvement in public life as other religions. And so they launch after school satanic clubs. They sue for the right to perform abortion rituals. Isn't this isn't this getting to be grotesque in our society? What happens when society gives up God? And they offer unbaptisms at public events, whatever that may be. But now they're focused upon a man by the name of Sean Faught. Falk is a Christian speaker, missionary, activist. He began a kingdom to the Capitol tour in 2023, and he aims to bring a movement called Let Us Worship Movement to every state capital in America. Now, that angers the satanic temple. So, in a recent appearance, Falk asked churchgoers in Oklahoma, he said, you want God to come on over and take over the government? And he received an enthusiastic applause, and yes, we want God to take over the government. But the Satanic Temple, as well as all humanists and people who are ignorant about the Constitution and constitutional foundations, they all become very quickly angered at the idea of a Constitution or of a country that is based upon God-given principles. And so they say it offends us. And Lucian Greaves, who is a, speak, a spokesperson for the Satanic Temple, immediately branded found as a, here we go, you know what is coming, a Christian Nationalist. And he announced his intention to combat this missionary's tour by having his own tour called Let Us Burn. I called it the burning tour, but it's the Let Us Burn. Now, what about this for a moment? Just think for a moment about the Christian nation. America was founded as a Christian nation. You can't read the founders and not come away with the idea that they believed and they understood that we were basing our laws all of our codes upon Christianity and Christian principles. You don't find anywhere in the founding generation that they wanted a secular, non-Christian, non-Christian country. So there's a professor at Princeton by the name of Kevin Cruz. He wrote a book several years ago called One Nation Under God, and he hardly. Ta- it's interesting because he hardly takes a glance at the founding generation. What did they say? And he begins in the 20th century, assuming in the mid 20th century that the entire concept was invented, and he moves forward from there. I thought, here is a professor at Princeton who doesn't even go back to the founding generation and tell us, because they're the ones who tell, told us that this is a Christian nation. So he doesn't even go back there. He begins in the 20th century where preachers such as Billy Graham said this is a Christian nation. He said, oh, that's an invention of the 20th century people in religion. Well, what he needed to do was go back to the founding generation because the founders said with one voice, this is a Christian nation. John Jay, for example, one of the writers of the Federalist Papers, told us very plainly that they understood this to be a Christian nation, not in the sense that there's an official church That had been established, not in the sense that a theocracy was in place, but rather that the principles upon which our republic rests are Christian in origin. That's the idea. Benjamin Morris, a second-generation American, surveyed the mass of material on this topic, and he summarized this with this statement. This is looking at the mass of material from the founding generation. Christianity is the principle And it is the all-pervading element, the deepest and most solid foundation of all of our civil institutions. It is the religion of the people, the national religion. But we have neither an established church, or an established religion. Now that's confusing to the modern secularists today, people of the Satanic Temple, or the humanists of the world, because, and the professorships of a world, because. They don't understand anything about the founding of our country. They don't understand what the founding fathers meant by having a Christian nation. And so all that language is very confusing to them. So what is the score on this? What is really the score? What what really do they have in mind? As they put it, we don't have a national church, an established church. We don't have an established religion. What do they mean by that? That meant a church or a religion that was sponsored by tax monies from the citizens of this country. That's what they intended by it. It had nothing to do with whether or not this is a Christian nation. They said this is a Christian nation, meaning the principles of the Bible, biblical concepts were embedded and are embedded into our founding documents. It had nothing to do with whether or not there would be an established church. And so when the satanic temple says, well, you're talking about being a, a you're a Christian nationalist. And I've seen people in, even in religious, in, even in churches, uh, Christian churches so-called, tell us the same thing. They misunderstand entirely. No, the truth is we have a Christian nation. That's at least how it was founded. And that did not mean we have an established church. didn't mean we're having a Christian nation christian nation in the sense of a being a christian nationalist some of the founders you might be interested to know even referred to america as a christian republic that generation demonstrated this fact by the by the, the uh, by the uh, icons by the carvings by the statues that they put up in public buildings public symbols such as moses crossing the red sea moses holding a tablet of stone carved that's on the Capitol, uh, that's on the building of rather of the Supreme Court, or state papers of the Continental Congress that are filled with references to Christianity. One of the formative laws of the United States, for example, was the Declaration of Independence. It's listed in the United States Code as one of our formative laws. And it reads more like a religious document than anything else. And our republic positive that rights come from God... And the role of the government is to protect the rights that God gave us, inclusive of life, liberty, and property, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And over and over again, the founding generation told us this is a Christian nation. Listen to Joseph's story, a jurist who served on the Supreme Court during the founding era. And he wrote, incidentally, a commentary on the Constitution of the United States. And here's how he commented. Probably at the time of the adoption of the Constitution... And the amendment to it now under consideration, the general, if not the universal sentiment was that Christianity ought to receive encouragement from the state. That's interesting. Did you hear that? Christianity receiving encouragement from the state. So far as was not incompatible with the private rights of conscience and the freedom of religious worship. In other words, we're not going to force people to go to a particular church or to pay taxes to support a particular preacher or a particular pulpit of a denomination. Then he goes on to say, An attempt to level all religions and to make it a matter of state policy to hold all in utter indifference would have created universal disapprobation, if not universal indignation. So yes, regarding the satanic temple, I'll point this out. Religious organization? Absolutely not. It claims to be a secular organization to begin with. But it has nothing to do with Christianity. It is anti-Christianity. As a matter of fact, they don't believe in the personality of Satan. So why do they call themselves the Satanic Temple? Well, because they want to stick their finger in Christians' eyes. That's why. That's all there is to it. So let's talk for a few more moments just about Christianity and the fact that this is a Christian nation. Not only did our founders tell us that, but they told us the state is to stay out of the religious practices of Christianity. Now, we take that, we have taken that to mean, well, that means if a school is set up, therefore, there's separation of church and state, a comment which is not found in the Constitution, nor in the Declaration, it's not found at all. But we say, well, we don't want the church invading the state. It's interesting to note that, the person who wrote that comment regarding separation of church and state was Thomas Jefferson. And he wrote to the Danbury Connecticut Baptist organization and his intent in that letter to the Danbury Connecticut Baptist was that the state would never interfere in the practice of religion. Understanding of course, that religion refers to Christianity, which was the universal religion of American at the beginning, at the founding of this period. So the satanic temple has it all wrong. The humanist people of the world, the professorships of the colleges and universities, absolutely ignorant on this particular topic. The Bible doesn't teach anything like this, and neither does the Constitution. This was established as a Christian nation, meaning of course the principles of Christianity embedded into the basic fundamental laws of this country. One of the outstanding features of our modern culture is the lack of moral integrity that we are seeing in the country. That is lack of moral integrity practiced by individuals, practiced by companies, even in churches. There's a lack of moral integrity that is practiced, whether it be in the military, whether it be in business, whatever it may be. And it's particularly, of course, in politics. One of the greatest articles I've read on this recently is written by Mike Morrell, and he writes in the Epic Times the latest issue that has come out this week and is called A Call to Moral Excellence. He says the most important step on the road to success is the act of becoming virtuous. But he said you may well respond, what what exactly is virtue? This question has been asked for more than 3,000 years by philosophers from Socrates to Aquinas. Men such as Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Virgil, dedicated much of their lives to understanding virtue. They esteemed it to be a quality of the soul, not a condition one is born with, but rather the result of years of self-discipline, and there's a key term. Now, in classical thought, virtues were defined as good habits that aim toward a higher end in life. And once these patterns of actions are established, by the way, how long does it take to establish a pattern of action? Some people say 30 days, other people say a little bit longer, but it takes time to establish a pattern of our behavior. And once these patterns of action are established, they're difficult to change. So the person who consistently chooses to act justly becomes just. One who persistently chooses moderation in food and drink becomes moderate. The choice between right and wrong actions today has far-reaching implications because we become what we do. The path of virtue, or we could even put it this way, the path of vice, as Morel puts it, can change our souls and our final destiny because virtue is the highest principle of human action. It directly impacts a rational, physical, and spiritual development. If you possess virtue within yourself, then you hold an inestimable treasure, a finely shaped human spirit in the context of your character. Think about self-help. So many people today are pursuing self-help. There's a modern self-help industry. And Morel argues that the modern self-help industry is vastly watered down. And here's a, here's a crucial point vastly watered down the message of moral excellence. For example, quoting Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of a High, of Highly Effective People, he found that most business books from recent decades focus on external attributes such as a polished technique or image consciousness or how we come across to people. And yet, Covey found that comparable literature from a century prior emphasizes internal qualities such as ethics, integrity, humility, temperance, patience, the golden rule coming right out of Matthew chapter 7 verse 12. The brightest minds of previous generations believe that virtue makes you successful both financially and in your personal well-being. It's your long attention to virtue more than any external quick fix that determines how effective a person you will become in life. Now, the Bible puts it this way The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, Solomon had much to say. I've departed from Morel at this point, but Solomon had much to say in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes about how to manage one's feelings, for example. And we're talking about self-discipline. A wise man will know when and how to express himself. He will also know how to restrain himself and when he needs to restrain himself. Proverbs 25 and 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now take the concept, for example, of love. Like wisdom, it has deep meaning. Jesus himself personifies love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. And Solomon urged us to cultivate love properly. It's important to note, cultivate it properly. Use wisdom. In other words, loving and hating, even though it comes by instinct and reflex, but loving and hating, if we simply allow instinct and reflex and chemistry, that's simply the way of fools. Loving and hating with hypocrisy are the ways of the wicked. And as with every force, love should be restrained and directed properly. This is the problem today when people say, well, I need to be with the person I love. Or as Joe Biden puts it, he said, you know, who are you to say that you can't marry the person that you love? And people love each other. They should be able to marry one another. He, of course, is speaking of homosexual marriage. Well, Solomon loved many women. First Kings chapter 11 and verse one. So what? Should we therefore endorse polygamy? No, the Bible does not endorse polygamy, even though the ACLU does, founded by people who are in the Communist Party. But be that as it may, they're pushing toward polygamy, but Solomon loved many women. It doesn't matter about who you love. So the idea is to discipline yourself. And love should be restrained and directed properly, and it has to be that way if you're going to be a disciplined person. So Morell tells us in his article, back to his article, he said, think of it this way. A dining room chair ought to be well-assembled and sturdy, and from a beautiful and durable hardwood at that. And don't forget a comfortable backrest. All these qualities work together to serve one purpose, to hold up the person who sits in the chair. In other words, what defines a good chair is simply the state of doing what it's supposed to do. Now, in the same way, a virtuous human being is one who does what she or he was made to do. That is, you are created by God in His image, and you are made, number one, to love and to serve Him, and to love and to serve others. That's what the Bible teaches pertaining to us. We're created by God, and virtue, therefore, is that we can do what God has made us to do. The person's essential qualities, their virtues, allow them to experience the good life, function at the highest potential. And virtue makes a person effective in the family. It makes you effective in the workplace. It makes you effective in the civic arena, The soul is healthy, fulfilled because that person is living as they were made to do. There are many virtues we could name from honesty, courtesy, diligence, gratitude. Boy, the welfare state has removed this, hasn't it? Classical thinkers identified four cardinal or key virtues. Number one, moderation. Number two, justice. Number three, fortitude. And number four, prudence. From the faith community, thinkers such as Augustine and Aquinas identified three other theological virtues, and they, of course, were simply copying what the Apostle Paul had put in First Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And they believed that these seven virtues are of the utmost importance to the human soul. That would be honesty, courtesy, diligence, gratitude, moderation, justice, fortitude, prudence. And then we've added faith, hope, and love. It is impossible to be virtuous in one area and lack it in another. To have one virtue means that you must have all virtue. So is virtue then impossible on the earth? Well, strictly speaking, the answer is yes. Virtues, however, aren't like light switches that we merely turn on and off. We can possess the virtues to greater or lesser extents, and so we need to progress, move in that direction, and although we'll never reach perfection on this earth, we are called as human beings to pursue that perfection. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. Matter of fact, running it down through verse 12, where he tells us very plainly, that we are, to, we are to pursue that perfection. Not that I've already made perfect, he tells us, but I press on, if so be that I may lay hold on that for which also I was laid hold on by Jesus Christ. So as we run the race toward moral excellence, we can approximate the high standard that has been set for us. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3.